everyone. Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Cohort W. I am your host, USAWAC faculty member and current Warrant Officer Historical Foundation Fellow, Chief Warrant Officer 5, Leonard Mominy. In today's episode, my incredible guests will share some personal and professional experience, mentorship, and leadership as an Army Senior Warrant Officer. The Senior Warrant Officer will then examine how this insight should ultimately influence potential action, development, and education within their compo, and that's a little bit of a hint for our uh, our, our guest today, and uh, even the greater cohort. The conversation is directed at leader development, talent management, and what they are doing to support the Army in both the current and future fight. Today, I am joined by CW5 Nelligan. Thanks so much for your uh, time today, sir. My pleasure, and thank you for this opportunity. Hey, uh, I was wondering, can you share with the audience a little bit about yourself? So I've been in the Army uh, almost 41 years. I started active duty. 13 Bravo, 8-inch field artillery. And when I signed the contract to join the Army, it was six years back then. And I thought I was joining for two years of active. And then we get all of that wonderful uh, college money, all 15200 of it, and go to college. Well, like most 17-year-olds, I thought I read the contract, but somehow I missed that I had an extra year in the reserve. And after a quick tour of Germany and as an 8-inch howitzer gunner, I find myself back in Connecticut getting ready to go to school. I get a call from a recruiter and me and my ignorance are going, no, I'm done. I don't want to go back in anything. And they say, oh, no, 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 you have a contract and you need to come back to the reserves. And so it led to, there was no field artillery in Connecticut, small state. So they offered me this thing called medical equipment maintainer, uh, MOS 35 golf. And I was going to go to college for electrical engineering. It just seemed like a gift from heaven. I went out to Colorado, Fitzsimmons Army Medical Center which much like the field artillery piece has been out of out of existence for many years. And we were so short coming the outlets back in 1987, 88, promoted E6. And so, yeah, I went to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, when they had one officer candidate school there and graduated as one of the youngest to come out of there, simply because of the necessity and, you know, typical, as we like to say, needs of the Army. And I've been enjoying the ride since. Wow. Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. Tell us uh, about your current MOS. Uh, MOS title and uh, duty position. Sure. So you never lose your warrant officer skill set. So I'm a 670 Alpha Health Services Maintenance Tech, diluted to I fix medical equipment and, and supervise all that do in both the hospital setting and in the field. In that role, I've been doing it so long, I've outlived everybody. And so now I'm the senior med maintenance advisor for the Army and I'm the Surgeon General's consultant for 670 Alpha for the Army. That was pretty cool. Right in about the same time all of these accolades were afforded me, uh, Lieutenant General Daniels selected me to be her command chief warrant officer. So I'm the eighth command chief warrant officer of the Army Reserve, and I've been on the job almost 15 months, and that has been a phenomenal ride for me. And this is actually my sixth command chief warrant officer assignment, because when I was told I would not make W-5 as a med maintenance uh, warrant, in the reserves, I worked in the civilian sector as a, as a med maintainer, and I thought, I got to do something different. And I was afforded the opportunity after a deployment to hang out with the command chief of the 94th RRC, Regional Readiness Command, dating ourselves again, who showed me a world I'd never thought of before. And I took to it and 
the two-star general at the time wasn't happy with the W-5s that were looking to replace this gentleman, and they asked me to apply. And he selected me as a W-4 um, to be the command chief of a 9,800-person New England command. And it was an incredible experience, and then it stuck. And so I went to the 804th Med Brigade, the 81st at the time, Regional Support Command. Then I ran warrant officer sessions for ARCG, went to the 75th training command that turned into the 75th innovations command and my last assignment before being selected was command chief of army reserve medical command and every every part of that journey has involved one huge component that i wake up every morning thankful for and that's to being able to do servant leadership for the warrant officer cohort of all three consuls guard reserve and active i talk to warrant officers and and walks every single day and uh it feels fantastic because it gives me hope for the future of our cohort that's incredible. And, you know, I happen to be lucky enough to have now talked to three of the uh, command chief warrant officers for the Army Reserve. Uh, a few uh, a few months ago, I was able to interview uh, CW5 retired Phyllis Wilson. And at the career college, I work with CW5 retired Russ Smith. So it's uh, it's it's incredible to get a chance to chat with you. That's pretty clear that you you don't just work for the Army Reserve. You You are a total Army officer. Yes, sir. And, you know, as you spoke about Russ and Phyllis, I, I served, I don't say under them, but, you know, I was on their board of directors and watched initiatives that they were passionate about and, and trying to get over the line. And we lacked, so they're both visionary, right? And they're both smart people, but, but we lacked the depth and breadth of other warrant officers buying in. And so I've been incredibly fortunate with being able to stand up things like a senior warrant officer advisory council for the Army Reserve that's actually chartered by Lieutenant General Daniels. So they answered to her. So now there's some some sustainability in warrant officer initiatives. They won't fizzle out when I leave office because they're they're now working towards completion. And uh, so right time, right place for me to be here. I like to consider myself a people person building teams. And, and the future with all three of the couples working with this cohort looks amazing because we're doing things for the active duty and we're doing things with the National Guard. In fact, I'll be down with you week after next because we're having a, a regional training institute uh, meeting about how they run their warrant officer candidate schools. And now the new topic is we're going to be part of it as the reserves. We're giving them TAC officers, instructors, um, because they're becoming a more critical component of me making warrant officers uh, to match the civilian jobs that are requiring more time that they can't just always come to Rucker, as you know, traditionally. So. It is opportunity aplenty, and, and the timing just couldn't be better. Uh, and I, I've noticed some of that synergy uh, that you've been working through with uh, some of the others. There was a, uh, a USA presentation a few months back. Uh, you, you, I think it featured yourself, you know, now retired CW5 Domeyer, uh, CW5 retired Wilson, and CW5 Knowlton, and the topic was central to talent management. Now, you're talking about total Army solutions there to the warrant officer cohort situation. Uh, can you describe the unique challenges facing uh, compos in the Army regarding the accessions and retention of warrant officer talent? I can, and you know, and to be very candid, I don't know how much you've delved into what I'm about to share with you, so if it's redundant, I apologize. But COMPO one's biggest challenge is retaining warrants after W-2. And the, the simple solution is it's because they wait eight to 10 years 
if not 12 years before they go and put their packets in. So now you have these senior NCOs that have gotten a lot of nicks and bruises, you know, on the trail going up to W2 and going, okay, I think I'm done. And it really doesn't incentivize them to stay because they have this warrant officer skill set. They have the creds of whatever job skill they've done. And they're looking at paychecks and, and, you know, guaranteed pensions and things like that. So what Rick, Rick, Teresa and Phyllis and I did was get on to talk about a, an initiative that happened this time last year, exactly this time last year, that the Talent Management Task Force had, um, had put together, which is allowing active duty retired warrant officers to come into the Army Reserve and the National Guard with certain considerations, because we are, in fact, short. And we're looking for particular skills that we need to hire that oftentimes are going to take too long to grow from our NCO Corps from the time we need them. So it's the retiree recall, if you will, for warrants. But here's the challenges. The longer you're out of the uniform, your skills are perishable, right? So you're, you're looking at, okay, I still call myself a warrant. I still think like a warrant, but I'm not working in that particular field wearing green. Even if I went into a civilian employer that does that type of career, and I'll give you an example, like an MI world, they go work for Booz Allen after they retire from the army, but it's not a warrant officer job. So time is the enemy when we talk about this program, but if you have the right skill set and you've been out not too long, there's a chance to come back in the guard and reserve and do the job you love doing in a part-time way while you're still working a full-time job. And the way they've worked out the uh, regulations is you will waive one day of your pension for one day of your army uh, day, but it's always retroactive. So if you drill a whole year and you did 48 drills and say, you know, two weeks of AT, so 14 days, that gives you 62 days that you work. What'll happen is you'll get a letter the following year from DFAS stating, you know, you can't concurrent receipt your pension and your reserve pay. So how would you like to pay it back? Do you want to waive 48 days of drill days if you make less than your pension, or do you want to waive 48 pension days? It's obviously the user's prerogative, but that's the caveat. And then the plus side is you come back in, whatever you retired at from a rank, there's a possibility you can get promoted to the next rank. You're still serving, you're still doing what you love. And when you go back again to look at retirement, you've got a boatload more points to add to that second time for tabulation for your pension. So that was why I was on the call was not to tout all of the benefits. I had to be, you know, the, the hammer to make it very clear. If you're thinking of coming back into the reserves and you've been out three to five years, uh, you may not want to attempt it because it's just too much that's working against you, including currently you have to get a physical at MEPS if you've been out over a year. And as you remember, probably a gazillion years ago, MEPS is designed to disqualify applicants at the entry stage because of, you know, they don't want to own them as a disability years on. But like me, you know, 40 plus years on my body has made, you know, some things not as efficient as they used to be. I'm not going to pass a MEPS physical and I'm going to require medical waivers. And the way things have progressed lately, that could be six to eight months before you're cleared. I don't really think our population that hears this is going to wait that long. And the clock is ticking as far as, as I said, the perishable skills. But it is an opportunity if you're getting out, you're at the RCCC point, the separation point, and 
you've got about a window of 365 days because then your ID card's still good. You don't have to get a physical and you literally come right over into our formation and you're collecting your pensions. That's the sweet spot of the program that I and the National Guard are trying to glean uh, from the active duty. But I'm just a, a thousand short for the end strength of the Army Reserve and the majority are uh, the W-2s, you know, W-1, W-2s, the entry level. And it, it's specifically because I'm 17,000 NCO short, and that's the population I draw from. So as that gets plussed up and rebalanced, we're doing some really creative things with the Guard. You know, they do a 20-year uh, mandatory retention board for their soldiers that have been in uh, their formations for 20 straight years for retainability. And oftentimes, warrant officers are being asked to leave with Lots of life left, but they're holding up promotions for officers behind them. And we've had success giving them new life in the Army Reserve. And I've had people that say, I want to fly. I don't have the squadrons near me. They go into the garden, they become warrant officer pilots. So those are just some vignettes. But the way that the, the focus used to be was guard worries about guard, reserve worries about reserve, and AC just keeps the machine going because they're the machine. Not anymore. We're putting instructors at active duty schools. We're putting tax at Rucker and in the RTI. The guard's doing the same. The active is talking about now attending reserve schools for their basic course um, because we have to make more warrant officers. And we have to do it in an expeditious way where we don't compromise the talent, but yet we get them into the formations faster. And we're all singing the same tune because if we don't get the active duty straight, they're just going to draw from the guard and reserve anyway, which is going to deplete us more. So we're all you know, blood brothers, if you will, in this, in this initiative. That's a big problem. And it's a, it's a total army solution that you guys are really applying toward uh, addressing it. So let's, let's put it up to the listeners. How can the field possibly better assist uh, the U S army reserve in in tackling both uh, recruitment and subsequent management of warrant officer talent? I'll give you the secret to Nelligan's success. And that's, I talked to E4s. I want a specialist who loves their job, that's willing to go through the NCO ranks, E5, E6, with the simple premise of not being a sergeant major, but being a warrant officer eventually, because you have to love your job. You know this too, as a warrant officer, if you're not a, a, a lifelong learner and always upping your game in your trade craft, you're not going to be a good warrant. But the specialists that are out there are looking for role models. They're looking for guidance. And we go after the sergeants which were dangerously close to having gaping holes when it comes to mobilizations. I can't do that to the sergeant or the NCO cohort. I want the, I want the overpopulated specialists to be spoken to by the wicked cool warrant officer wearing their dot with the swagger of confidence and, and technical expertise to talk to them and mentor them and say, Hey, if you follow this journey and this path, when you get to a certain level where you need a, an interview and a letter of recommendation, I'm there. I'm your guy. I'm your mentor. I want to be part of your success. And more importantly, people are going to stick around when they feel that they're cared for and, and wanted and somebody's helping them with a plan. And we're losing those E4s in, in droves and in, in such a waste of talent. But they come to drill and they, they feel like they're underutilized and they're not doing the cool stuff they were promised get a warrant officer involved, it's a natural marriage because wherever a warrant officer is, there's a teaching opportunity. There's a mentoring opportunity. There's an introduction into some cool stuff we're doing, and it doesn't take a lot to make it happen. 
So as the listeners hear this, I'm 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 giving you a call to arms. You got to be our best and 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 most successful billboard with why it is the most awesome rank, most coolest cohort because we don't let warrants fail. You know, we have the ultimate opportunity to come through in big ways with minimal resources and and the expectation of us is we're going to get the job done. Well, not if we have dwindling formations. So they need you, all of you, need to buy into this uh, concept and start bragging what we do and, and be proud of being able to talk to people about an opportunity for their future. And to be honest, sir, you really nailed it earlier on when you said warrant officers were wicked awesome. That's yeah. for you, New England. <laughs> you know, I'm an educator and uh, educators are always looking for innovative ideas on education. Something I've been considering is trying to establish a uh, uh, class on recruiting and talent management at the ILELA. What are some of your thoughts on how warrant officer education can be uh, best modernized? So I'll give you, let me take your first point, because I think you're, um, you're incredibly insightful in introducing that. And I would support that wholeheartedly because, you know, in sales, there's the joke of the elevator pitch. We get on on the first floor and by the fifth floor, you've got to be able to encapsulate what you're doing. So I understand it. And the next iteration is I'm asking you the questions instead of you trying to force feed me all of this info. To be blunt, we stink at our elevator pitch. You ask a warrant officer what he does and, and you get such a convoluted answer. It's very difficult at times to make them a role model to people because they act like they don't even know what they do, let alone why they would be somebody to emulate. So having a, having a class on the finer points of salesmanship of our of our cohort, not just from the retention recruiting piece, but from the, the viability of, of leaders saying, I can't do this without my warrant. Like that, that old days where you hear, our, you know, these four-star generals lamenting when they had that W-2 in the motor pool save their butt when they were lieutenants. Yeah, those are good stories, but we can do so much more than just the motor pool because we're strategic thinkers by design but if you keep limiting us because the warrant officer doesn't want to come out of their shell and they're only a maintainer or they're only uh, a pilot, which you see all the time at the schoolhouse, then they're not going to do a good job in retention and recruiting because that's all they're talking about is their particular skill versus the cohort, which, again, it's wicked cool being a warrant officer at all, regardless of your MOS. That's just value you added. So that that's the first part. and. You know, to your question of what can we do better um, from a training perspective, I don't think it's an appropriate term, and I may get some pushback from the people that listen to call to call us um, technical experts all the time. And the reason I say that is we haven't had refresher training when you get into the W three, W four, especially W five level, and our particular proponent of any magnitude to keep us literally as um, above reproach from our, our technical skills. We've just mastered our craft and learned how to survive and get into the right formations and the right systems to both self-study, self-learn, and hopefully mentor the formations around us. If we are truly going to be a technical backbone of the Army of 2030, the PME redesign is one thing, but I think there has to be a much better connection between the creators of the systems, the GEs, the Boeings, for example, and that continuation 
not a training with industry per se, but just a package that comes with the acquisition paperwork that says the warrant officers have through the life cycle of their, their support, this many refresher opportunities, or they're always going to be afforded the latest and greatest technical uh, tools, troubleshooting tools, et cetera. Because I heard this story the other day, well, it was a couple of weeks ago. So an M1 tank, an engine is a million dollars. And yet the, the warrants and the maintainers are only given troubleshooting tools to a certain point before they have to call a field service representative in to then take the engine out and swap it with another one. That, that's a, that's a, a very bad design. And, and frankly, even if the warrant officer is the technical expert, because they can't diagnose past a certain level, they're technically obsolete, frankly. So I think the redesign, and it starts with the acquisition, but warrant officers have to be more vocal on, don't put any more systems into our inventory unless we are infused at every facet of this life cycle management so that we don't put ourselves out of business and become obsolete because it doesn't involve us cradle to grave. You know, there's a W3 or W4 out there somewhere. And they want to rise to that position that you now hold. What would you say to them? You need to step out of your comfort zone and realize whatever leadership you're working for are human. They have they have hobbies they like. They have sports they like. They have uh, particular nuances that you need to take and make an extra effort to learn because they're the ones that truly control your destiny and your career. I assure you, every command chief position I had was with the general that I still today call a personal friend. And it was things like sitting and watching an MMA fight, eating wings and a beer with one of my generals. Another was um, being involved in helping their one of their children join the military. But there was always a personal connection to the leadership I was involved with so that it wasn't Chief Nelligan, even though that was our title. It was Pat Nelligan. And, 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 and my role in all-encompassing just a solid team leader like Hint, hint, what the sergeant majors do. You look at the sergeant majors and the commanders, they're joined at the hip, even if they don't like each other, because that's how the army designed it. So our challenge is how to break in as that third leg and have value because we don't give ourselves enough credit of the strategic vision and strategic role we could play and have until we're at the table. And they don't invite us at the table if all we want to do is recite regulations and and, and, you know, nuances to the equipment and, and jobs we do. They want to hear what depth we bring based on how good we are as tech, technical leaders to problem solving and, and the skill sets that make us look at, you know, force projection and, and the type of resources required and take, an, take a logistics MOS, for example, and, you know, what forward deployed elements need this type of package. That's strategic thinking. Even though it involves our skill set, we're not talking about, you know, fueling up two vehicles. We're talking about fueling up 2,000. That's strategic thinking. And when you sit in a board, um, a conference room with these general officers or these commanders and they start talking about, what if we tried, I kid you not, there's so many instances I could relate to you where I've gone, we did and it didn't work and here's why. And they look at you and it's not because you're negative, because you want to give them solution sets. It's because you're above reproach. You've literally been around that long and have done that many things that you're saving them a lot of extra work trying something that isn't going to work and offering the solutions that probably are not going to come from traditional staff level exercises because action officers don't think like warrant officers. But warrant officers could think like action officers. So there's the dual benefit. So if you want to really up your game, 
and ensure your success as a senior warrant officer leader, you have to be more than just a warrant officer, even if there isn't a formal way in the Army to get the things like the Army War College or, or um, CNGS. There's plenty of resources out there that will make you a much better strategic thinker and how to get along in a boardroom. You know, Simon Sinek and all of the things he teaches about leadership apply now. And those, those leaders that are in positions right now are, are thirsty for an out-of-the-box type of leader to be part of their team because they're not getting it with what they have currently. Got to get out of your comfort zone and don't just try to be what you think a warrant is supposed to be. You need to be a leader and you need to create value for yourself with the people that are writing your OERs and are also the ones who are going to be recommending you as you move through your chain of command. We are quickly approaching the end of our uh, time here. So uh, I just want to take this time to tell you again, thank you um, for for coming on the show. I think this is going to be uh, wonderful for the audience to tap into. Oh, well, it was my, again, my pleasure. Anytime you want to chat, let me know. We can do another. Hey, it's so great to hear senior warrant officers share mentorship with those they seek to serve. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing how a senior warrant officer's leadership can ultimately contribute to meeting the Army's needs for both the current and future fight. For updates on Cohort W and the Warrant Officer Historical Foundation, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Simply search for at WOHF1918 or the Warrant Officer Historical Foundation. Finally, to learn more about how you can support programs like this, please visit warrantofficerhistory.org.